This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, the New Orleans Ethics Review Board voted unanimously this week to recommend a revision to the city's code of ethics that would bar city council members and candidates from accepting political contributions from city-regulated utility firms. New numbers released by the Department of Public Safety and Corrections reveals a 150% increase in COVID-19 cases since last week among people incarcerated in Louisiana state prisons. And the NOLA Public Schools District is reporting 116 active cases of COVID-19 among students and staff in the early days of the new school year. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Podcast this week, government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein. Hey, Michael. Good morning. Criminal justice reporter Nick Crastles here. Hey, Nick. Morning, Kayla. Education reporter Marta Jusen. Good morning, Marta. Carolyn. And Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hey, Charles. Good morning. Michael, up first with you, an ethics review board has recommended banning political contributions to council and candidates from Entergy and other utilities who operate under city regulations. What happened at the ethics review board this week? Yeah, so so I'll start by just clarifying um, that there's a state ethics board and a city ethics board. And so for this, we're talking about the city ethics board. And so they, they met earlier this week um, to discuss a proposal Um, that had been brought forward by the Greater New Orleans Interfaith Climate Change Coalition, um, which is a group of of very active uh, climate and energy uh, advocate. Um, And they brought proposal to the Ethics Board um, that there should be a change to the city's code of ethics that would bar city council members and and city uh, council candidates um, from receiving contributions from a pretty wide range uh, of sources. you know, it would include Entergy, um, Cox, any other, you know, what's called regulated utility. It would also bar contributions from any firm or, or person who has a contract rewarded by the city council or the sewerage and water board. It would also create a new disclosure requirement for candidates that would basically, uh, any anyone who wanted to run for city council would have to disclose um, whether they would, had received any contributions or financial benefits from any of those sources over the, the previous five years. So that was the proposal. The board voted uh, in favor of it, uh, which means that now it is an official recommendation to the city council. So uh, all of these rule changes are still recommendations in order for them to become actual rules and changes in the, the code of ethics. The city council will need to vote on that. Okay, so it sounds like there were some loopholes prior to this. Yeah, I mean, so so basically, it, starting in in the you know mid aughts, like two thousand six, two thousand seven, the city council started volunteer voluntarily committing to not take contributions um, from Entergy, um, from the city's utility consultants. You know, some of the main ones that fit into these categories. You know, kind of the same. Uh, spirit, they've basically just been non-binding resolutions. So more or less what the resolutions were, it was basically saying we as seven council members vow to not take contributions from these sources. But it hasn't historically applied to council candidates who weren't on the city council. And also it's been a non-binding resolution, meaning that if someone did take money from one of these sources, it might be embarrassing, you know, if a you know, if a publication reported on it, but they wouldn't 
be at any actual consequences. Um, so the, the Interfaith Climate Change Coalition wanted, you know, these basically voluntary promises to become actual ethics rules um, with potential, you know, criminal consequences. Yeah, I mean, this seems to have been proposed right around the same time that the current sitting city council was uh, moving through a, a you know a non-binding resolution that applied to energy and utility consultants. And I think the the most recent resolution was was possibly the first one that that they sought to try to apply it to to uh, council candidates who are not sitting council members, if I remember correctly. Is that right, Michael? Yeah, so, so the resolution, you know, again, these non-binding resolutions, um, the one that was passed in June was definitely the most extensive one that's ever been passed, um, at least as far as I know. But yeah, I mean, a, a big part of it was that, again, like we, we I just talked about, it has historically been a resolution that was, you know, us seven council members vowed not to do something. Now this new resolution um, was, and hey, council candidates, so highly encourage you to follow these rules as well. So again, still not non-binding, no one can get in actual trouble for it, um, but it is setting a certain precedent that, you know, it's expected, you know, it's at least setting the precedent that, you know, there is a conflict of interest here um, and, you know, there is a potential ethical issue with taking money from the companies that you'll be expected to regulate um, and or hire um, in this job. Um, but again, that was still a non-binding resolution. So yeah, this group wanted to make that a little bit stricter. To turn it into real code, it, it, they may not have the legal authority to do that? Well, it, it's, it's unclear. Um, so, so there were some legal issues that were discussed at the Code of Ethics. Ultimately, um, they decided to recommend the policy anyway without firmly resolving those legal issues. Um, I, I think from, from the Board of Ethics standpoint, they are making this recommendation based off of the ethical principles involved. Um, and they say that, you know, ethically, candidates should not be taking money from these sources. Now, you're wading into some tricky legal territory here because we're talking about um, not just um, First Amendment free speech uh, uh, rights here, we're talking about political speech, um, which is especially protected and especially touchy, um, you know, because you're talking about barring certain people um, and certain companies from participating in the political process, from participating in the election process, which is not a small thing um, in a country built off of, you know, free, fair elections with free speech. So I, I think that there are some concerns there um, about, you know, a city council wading into, you know, election finance laws, which again, uh, you know, is something that gets litigated at the highest levels of government. Um, so I, you know, I think that there were some concerns there. There were also uh, questions about whether the code of ethics can create rules for people who aren't currently you know, city council members or government officials, right? So again, um, you know, this isn't just creating rules for city, sitting city council members. Um, it's also creating rules for candidates um, who could just be me or you or, or, you know, anyone just outside of government. So again, can the government create ethics rules for people outside the government is another legal question. Um, and the, the disclosure requirement might also be a tricky issue, right? Because that's traditionally been the purview of the state ethics board, not the city ethics review board. Right. And, and right. And so there's a question about, you know, can the city ethic code of ethics, how much further can it go than the state code of ethics? 
Um, I, basically, how it was explained to me um, it was that you have the state code of ethics, which you know you you can't create any ethics rules on a local level that are less stringent or less strict than the state level. Um, but theoretically, you can make rules that are more strict or more stringent than the state level code of ethics. So that was the argument for why they would be able to do something like this. Although, um, although I will add that there are, that I believe that the city already requires some level of disclosure for employees that goes somewhat beyond the requirements of the state ethics board. Like uh, there, certain department heads and and uh, and high-ranking officials in the mayor's office are required to submit. Uh, at least a few years ago, I believe the requirement is still in effect. That are required to submit um, uh, financial disclosures, even though they're not required to under the state ethics rules. Yeah, I, that seems like the the most clear out of kind of these three legal issues. Um, I think that was the kind of the least least considered one. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And, and so, you know, with the other two, when we're talking about, you know, uh, you know, the First Amendment stuff, I think, again, this has kind of been thrown to city council to be like, you know, y'all bring this to your lawyers, you do your research, and um, this is our recommendation, but it's ultimately up to you to figure out if this is actually something that is legally appropriate. Are you aware, um, was there was there any discussion of extending um, new restrictions to to other officials, like specifically the mayor. The mayor's office obviously is involved in a lot of other contracting, and you know that traditionally the mayor's off the mayoral candidates have received a large number of contributions from city contractors. So I'm just I'm curious if it, if this if that had come up, and apparently it hasn't. Yeah, it, it's it's kind of interesting. I mean, the, the 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 clause in this in this recommended rule that says that they can't accept uh, contributions from anyone with a contract with the city council is definitely interesting. I, I think that that clause is probably aimed at the um, utility consultant contracts, which are by far the biggest given by the city council. Um, and then maybe when discussing that, you know, they were like, well, the city council doesn't issued that many contracts anyway, so we might as well make it, you know, make this rule for all of them. I think it would be a lot trickier making that rule for the mayor, um, you know, who issues a lot more contracts yeah. deals with a lot more people. Um, but I don't think that that was part of this conversation. All right. So going back to the creation of this thing in the in the 1950s, uh, your article outlines that, that there haven't been changes to it since it was created pretty much because it's really complicated process, but this one seemed streamlined. How did that happen? Yeah, so so I, I mean, this was a, a point that I found particularly interesting, which is that, you know, the Code of Ethics um, was first uh, established in the 1950s, and, th and there really haven't been that many changes to it since then. Um, and, and, you know, I, I mean, I was just trying to figure this out because I haven't really covered, you know, since I started working at The Lens, I haven't covered many changes to the city Code of Ethics, and I was wondering, you know, is this an extremely difficult process? Is it a very high bar? You know, why haven't I covered this before? Um, and the answer seems to be that the code of, you know, I talked to the chair of the, the um, board of ethics and, and, and she explained that this is one of the, this is the first time since she came on the board in 2017 that a group has come forward with a proposal to change the code of ethics. Um, and basically what she said was, we're not naturally resistant you know, to these proposals or to changing the code of ethics, but we just rarely receive proposals to change it. Hmm. Um, so I thought that was just an interesting point because, you know, I don't think that 
when people think about trying to make changes in, in how, you know, city government works, um, I don't think that, you know, this has been typically, you know, talking to, to activists and advocates and people who are trying to make change, um, this hasn't been typically talked about as a, you know, an avenue to creating that. But it, it seems like it might actually be a lot easier process than people imagined. I mean, I think people in the climate, uh, the Interfaith Climate Change Coalition, um, you know, they, they were shocked, honestly, that, that this passed so quickly and easily. I mean, they brought this to the Board of Ethics in June. Um, you know, we're talking two months later, um, you have a recommendation of the city council recommending the change. So I, I think it was just interesting that not many people approached the Board of Ethics, apparently, uh, for, for ethics changes, but it might be hmm. a more viable path than, than people believe. Right. Yeah, yeah but, you know, worth, worth keeping in mind, of course, that, you know, this recommendation has not changed anything yet, and uh, we still have to see what the council is going to do with it. Very true. Okay, thanks, Michael. Thank you. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein, criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel, education reporter Marta Jusen, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, I'm Philip Kiefer, health reporter here at The Lens. When it matters, The Lens is here. And we're here because of you. Because of the thousands of people like you who support this service, you get the news that you tell us matters. Your tax-deductible gift now ensures that everyone in the community has access to facts and diverse voices and points of view. Ensure that you have the information you need and the news that matters. Every donation adds up to a public media service that serves the community. Make a donation at thelensnola.org donate. And thank you. Nick, unsurprisingly, I guess, COVID cases in prisons and the New Orleans jail are on the rise. What's the latest on COVID numbers in prisons first? So in, in the state prisons, the numbers have more than doubled in a week. So right now there are 132 cases being reported among prisoners at the nine state, uh, state-run prisons. Um, and there are uh, a reported 68 cases among staff at those facilities. So that that's not only you know double from last week, but you know near the end of July they were reporting no cases among prisoners. So mm. you know it's really we're really seeing it um, you know spread spread pretty quickly in, in those facilities. Uh, what is the Department of Corrections doing to minimize or mitigate the risk? Well, we know at the end of July they. Um, suspended in-person visitation again. Um, they had opened that up, I believe, you know, a month or two before um, when, the, when the cases, it seemed like things were slowing down and, and things were kind of starting to get back to normal. Um, so they've, they've ended that and they are, they actually have a, a, a higher vaccination rate among prisoners than um, than the general population. So somewhere around 70% of, of all state prisoners are, are vaccinated and they've been incentivizing that through uh, a $5 canteen credit. Um, one of the, one issue is that, is that the, is that the prison staff is less vaccinated than the prison population. So, you know, you have staff that are, that are coming and going who might not have received the vaccine. And then I think they're doing, you know, kind of the standard temperature checks and, and screenings when prisoners get get transferred to different places. Although they've also um, 
had, had they've suspended routine transfers as well. Um, and, and that's been, you know, the case for, for some time. So. And you said the inmate population is 72%, which is quite a bit higher than the statewide average. What about the staff percentage? We don't know exactly because staff are not required to give their vaccination status. So there's, we don't know for sure. Um, we know at one facility where they're, uh, the largest outbreak is at, at Dixon Correctional Institute. The staff vaccination rate is only is only forty three percent of mm. those who've reported their vaccination. And to be fair, the the prisoner population at, at Dixon is is less than the overall prisoner population, and it's it's at fifty seven percent. So a little bit lower there. And I think from what from what I understand, that sort of uh, proportion to staff to prisoners is, is exists throughout the rest of the prison system as well. Some of those prisoners are being quarantined. Some are still are being taken to Camp J. Yeah, so so Camp J is is being utilized right now for prisoners who are being held at local facilities and and pretrial detainees uh, um, being held at, at jails. Um, so so jails from around the state, sheriffs who are who are running jails from around the state can send uh, people in their custody who have tested positive for COVID nineteen to Camp J which is at uh, Louisiana State Penitentiary at, at Angola, um, and it's a, a, you know, a, former, a, a, sh- a formerly shuttered um, disciplinary camp that was used to hold people in solitary confinement and, and was, um, was shut down in 2018 um, after you know, a, a lot of criticism over the conditions of the camp and, and the way it was being used. At the beginning of the pandemic, the Department of Corrections opened it up again, um, which was a, a you know a controversial move. They said that they that they sort of cleaned it up and and gave it a paint job and, and added some amenities and and that it, it was now a good good place to quarantine people who had tested positive. Advocates were were very upset by that move and continued to be to be uh, opposed to them using this. But so so currently there are actually only seven detainees and prisoners from around the state being held there. That's uh, down from 11 last week. I should also note that there are eight prisoners currently in the hospital from COVID-19, which is numbers that, that we also just got this week. Total. Apparently none of them are, are on ventilators, but um, what was that? Total statewide, eight in the hospital? Yeah, th- and those are, are prisoners that were... They they're they're all DOC prisoners, so they're not they they are prisoners that have been sentenced um, to to prison time. They are not you know detainees being held in jails. We don't we don't have those numbers. Well, and this I mean it, it you know presumably that's that's going to reflect um, the most serious cases. I, I I assume of the population of the one hundred and thirty two that there are probably some who are inside medical units inside of prisons and, and jails. Yeah, I think that's definitely possible. And what are the numbers at the New Orleans jail? So there are 16 people who have tested positive at the New Orleans jail. None of them are being hospitalized, according to a, a lawyer for the sheriff's office. Um, and that's the same amount as, as last week. He said that the four units of the of the jail are being, are being quarantined, kind of a whole floor of the jail, from what I understand, is, is under quarantine. And they, you know, They've, they've struggled as, as pretty much every jail and prison has throughout the pandemic to kind of keep those numbers uh, down. So yeah, we'll see where I'm, you know, can, we'll continue to keep an eye on that. Okay, thanks, Nick. Yeah, thank you, Carol. Marta, in more COVID news. 
along with schools. Um, school year just began for some students and numbers of COVID cases in New Orleans schools are being reported for the first time. We got the first look at COVID infections this week. What are the numbers? Yeah, so it was good to see our first uh, report of numbers from the classrooms. Um, and we had 116 cases across the districts that's uh, staff and students combined. What is noteworthy of those numbers is that 63 of those people had not actually been in a classroom yet. So while they may have caused a quarantine here, or someone to quarantine here or there, uh, you know, they weren't, they hadn't exposed their whole class or anything like that. Okay. And how many quarantines now? Um, across the district, we have 638. So both that case number and that quarantine number are some of the, the higher numbers I think we've ever seen throughout the pandemic. So I want to go back to the first number you just talked about, 63, you said we're not in school. Th that relies on sort of self-reporting, right? If they're not going to school, are the schools relying on individuals to say, I've got it, and reporting right. that to their... That, that's my understanding of what that number represents. Um, and then I also think that that 116 number is, you know, that's as of last Friday. We had a couple other cases at uh, the Morris Jeff campus, for example, that were not reported in the case count that came, comes out on Monday. And we asked the district about that, and they said that, you know, that they do have a little bit of a delayed reporting process because schools have to take a number of steps, including contact tracing, before they actually kind of, you know, submit their numbers uh, to the district. So I, I do think there are plenty more cases out there that we don't know about at the right. moment. You'd think, right? Uh, and there are some schools with an unusual number of quarantines. Yeah, I mean, the one that really stuck out to me was Kipps Booker T. Washington campus, um, where they had... They had eight cases, but they had 174 quarantines, which um, if that's all students, and again, they don't break down quarantines by students and staff, but if it is all students, that would be 30% of their student body. Wow. You know, at Warren Easton, and we asked Kip, you know, did they think this came from, you know, football practice or, you know, certain other activities or was it from classrooms? We asked Kip and they wouldn't tell us specifically. They said, quote, they believed believed to be unrelated, unquote. Hmm. At KIPP East, they had 94 students quarantining. They also wouldn't tell us the reason for that. Uh, at Warren Easton, they had 57 people quarantining from 21 cases. And their principal, Mervyn Jackson, said that that was believed uh, to be related to summer activities. Correct me if I'm wrong. Two, two of these with these high quarantine numbers are high schools, right? Correct. And when we're talking about high school, we're talking about a population where the, the entire student body is eligible for vaccines. And, and under the guidelines, if you're vaccinated, you're not required to quarantine. So are, are we seeing some, some numbers that, that, that point to a concerning trend in, in vaccinations among high school students, or do we know? I, I mean, I think that's certainly, a, that's a thought that I've had and, you know, that you've had and probably others have had, but uh, we just don't have that data yet. Um, the district thinks they'll have vaccination rate information by early September. Um, I asked KIPP and I asked Warren Easton about their vaccination percentages and, you know, Easton said that they just didn't have that number yet and KIPP didn't really address it. Can you outline real quick just what the general requirements are for schools and if any are going beyond those requirements? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, schools are requiring masking. If anyone tests positive, they have to do, go ahead and do contact tracing. Um, and then basically what they're doing now with the Delta variant, which is different than last year, is that they're, they're telling or suggesting to every family who could be a close contact 
that their student or teacher should be tested both the day or the day after their potential exposure and then five to seven days later as well. Okay. And then they do have um, 14 day quarantines, which was, they elevated that number. It was last year, they had dropped it down to 10 towards the end of the year, but now it's back up to 14. And statewide, what's Bell Edwards suggesting? Or what are what's what are the statewide guidelines? Are we going they're, beyond they're, those? They're pretty similar. I'm basically the what has happened throughout the pandemic is that Orleans Parish has taken a, a harder stance on all of these, right? So requiring masks for um, people five and older in their schools, which not all districts did last year, um, and which has become you know really a hotbed topic throughout the state currently. Because right, well, because this now necessarily planning to do that, but Bell Edwards put that in an order. Was it last week? Which you know supersedes any district decision. Right. So I think you saw you saw a lot of pushback in St. Tammany, for example. Yeah, I think St. Tammany this week. That was the uh, that was the only district that we were able to the only district in the metro area where other than Orleans Parish where we were able to get some some numbers on their cases because you know the state collects the 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 data for each school district and publishes that but the state isn't going to start doing that until next week um but you did get the numbers in st tammany what were the numbers right we had 80 cases in st tammany that's between staff and students what are teachers saying are you are you hearing anything from from teachers about this school year yeah i think um i'm hearing from some teachers who are reaching out on a um i guess you'd say more confidential basis just because they're 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 worried. Um, I think teachers agree that they want to be in school, but I, I think there's a lot of feeling of concern right, right now about how do we safely be in school. And, and I know, you know districts are trying their best, but I think with this variant, there's just kind of a lot of unanswered questions, especially with, you know, the numbers of the cases and the hospitalization rates we're seeing among young kids. You know, that's something we did not see in the previous waves. Is there any option for either, well, I guess for either students or teachers to opt out of in-person learning? Basically, they have limited that to what appears to me to be a very narrow segment of people with uh, uh, possible illnesses or other medical conditions. But there are a lot of people, there's a lot of chatter of people who are hoping that that would be an option too. But at this point, it is not unless you're quarantined or have a certain medical condition. But if you have that medical condition, let's say, and you do have the you do have the legitimate excuse, that means the teacher has to provide online class for the for those that population. I don't necessarily know that and I know in the past they've done um like work from home take home work packets, so for children who do qualify under that um exemption, I'm I'm not sure for all charters across the network, if that is in-person or if that is virtual instruction with, the, with an actual human or if it would be some type of program or take-home packet. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it, it, that's gonna vary from, that's gonna vary from network to network and, and, and school district to school district, how they handle that. I know some school districts and presumably some charter schools as well, um, you know, have have contracts with virtual learning um, companies, so so they're not forcing the teachers to do, do to simultaneously do virtual and in person classes. Hmm. But that's going to vary. Okay. All right. Well, Marta, thanks for keeping an eye on it for us. Thank you. Okay. Well, great. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Stay safe, everybody. Sure.
This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week Michael Isaac Stein, Nick Krastel, Marta Jusen, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. You can read all the week's other news and opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening.